finishing up the fourth chapter of Exodus. I'm convinced that in this portion of inspired scripture, God has a message for each of us to hear today. And I think maybe you've heard me say that before or someone else, but it's true. All scripture is breathed out by God for his people. There, there are no extra verses of scripture that accidentally got included. They're all for us. So this passage is historically accurate, but it's much more than the story of Moses' life or of the event of God delivering Egypt from their, or delivering Israel from their Egyptian oppressors. This is the story of God working redemption in and through his people. Of God gifting and growing faith in the middle of struggle and of leading to a relationship with and worship of our creator, God. Really the story of every Christian. And in it, in today's text, we need to see that we need, in an ongoing basis, our merciful and powerful Savior to free us from idols, to fit us for life and an eternity of worship. God has been good to us as we've been in Exodus these past several weeks, but let's turn now to our text before us today and read it. Exodus 4, starting in verse 18. And I'll read through the end of the chapter. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus Says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he would commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads together and worship and ask God to bless this word to our hearts. Father, you are God alone. You are the sovereign over all the universe that you created by speaking the word. You are over every ruler or kingdom of this earth. And as we've already sung, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And all your creation will one day bow before you. We pray today that you would open our eyes to more of who you are. Even, Lord, if there's someone here who could rattle off all 
the attributes of God and define them like a theological textbook. I pray that even they would have their understanding of you deepened. You are infinite in depth so we can never fully grasp or fathom your attributes and who you are. And I pray today that we would stand and kneel and sit and fall on our faces before you in awe. And I pray, Lord, for us as lights in this community, in the world that you've placed us into, I pray that we would be sensitive to just how you'd have us to serve, that we would seek out opportunities to be Christ-like in our workplaces, to be salt in our communities, to speak the name of Jesus perhaps where it has never been spoken. Father, as there's people doing that today, on the other side of the continent. I pray that you would protect those ministries, that you would bless the proclamation of the gospel both here and all around the world. That you would protect the lives and hearts and devotions of brothers and sisters in churches in China and in Japan in Europe, in Australia, in South America. You are a big God. and You are gathering a people to praise your name. And I pray, Father, again, that you would do that in us today as we humble ourselves to hear and obey your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. So I've been doing some thinking lately on the topic of identification. Not the kind you carry in your wallet. See, got mine. To verify to the world who you are. But the kind of identification that you know and feel internally. Who you identify with. What, what people do you identify with? What things do you identify with? A few of us would probably volunteer that we identify ourselves with our stuff until something's taken away from us. Then we feel very deeply that that was ours, that we were wronged. When we lose something, we find out the reality of just how much we identify with things. Now, I've never had a major loss like a house fire, like one of my neighbors did recently, or a significant theft like a lot of money or a vehicle. But I'm told there can be a feeling of loss beyond just the replacement cost of getting those things back. Over time, we can begin identifying ourselves with our belongings and feel as if we lose part of ourselves even when they're gone. But then looking at people, people close to us can provoke even a stronger sense of identification, I believe. I'm especially thinking of our children we identify our children with us. They, they share our name, usually. And Lorraine and I have found, especially in the adoption world, there's this keen awareness of identification. And a question we're really honestly struggling with and have for some time is, at what point is a child truly yours that you can really say that they're your child? You can identify them as part of your family when there's this multi-year process that takes place in adoption during which you really have no legal rights to them. To call them your child is actually a bit foolish, but you feel identifying with them. How can you identify with a child or with someone that doesn't even know you exist? We've had a little Haitian girl's picture for over a year now. No information about her. Hear how she's doing since we were referred to adopt her and strange as this is, we can almost feel like she's our daughter. 
Yet we're still waiting for something to legally make that a reality. There's this identification. Then in addition, there's other things like attachment. That's whether a child feels like they're yours or whether you feel connected and love this child as your own, this bonding that takes place as they learn to trust his or her parents. It can be difficult in adoption when a child has never attached with any individual parent before, the case of many orphans. So identification, and this is going to tie in with the message, is a two-way street. There are many parallels with how we grow in our understanding of God identifying with us, his people, and us identifying with him as our father, learning to trust him explicitly. So we have this identification, and it's, it's a process, really. It's part of what I'm calling today this struggle of faith. As we go through today's text and apply it to our lives, there's a couple questions related to this concept that I want us to keep in mind. The first question, do I see God as someone who identifies with me? Do I see God as someone who identifies with me? Or is he just a distant, separate figure? Second, in what ways do I identify with God? In faith? In obedience? And where do I struggle to identify with God? And the third question, what truths about God and his gospel do I need today to help me in the fight of faith? So I'm contending today, I'm, I'm claiming today, that there is an ongoing struggle for faith that is the normal part of every Christian experience. If you struggle at times in your faith, you are not outside the normal. This is, this is normal. God is working to grow our faith in and through these struggles. If he made our ways perfectly clear, that would make faith unnecessary. But he now wants to grow our faith. And there may be victories as we learn to trust God in areas of our life. There will be setbacks. But in both, we know God is working to strengthen, to refine our trust in him. And we know, brothers and sisters, we know we have the confidence that every genuine Christ follower will ultimately persevere. You'll ultimately win this struggle, this fight of faith and stand before him with your faith complete as it becomes sight. The specific struggles will surely be unique in every case, but there is, brothers and sisters, an ongoing battle of belief in each of us. We see it in Moses, but we know it in reality. So in the text this week, we have this series of Scene changes. The scene changes so fast, you almost just start to figure out what's happening, and then it changes again. Little like two or three verse sections where God is talking with Moses, or Moses is meeting with his father-in-law, or Moses and Zipporah are on the road to Egypt. These little vignettes of Moses returning from the wilderness and coming to be a part of the people of God that are still captive in Egypt. He's returning at the direct call and command of the God of heaven with the promise of success in speaking to the people about God and his plan to rescue them. The growth of faith we see in Moses happens during this return to Egypt, most notably in response to five key actions of God. We're going to look at these five key actions, and if you have a bulletin, they're there for you. I'll try to repeat them if you don't, in case you're taking notes. And with each of these actions of God, there's a related attribute or character quality that God possesses. And as we go through these, let's try to understand together what God is teaching Moses and what he is teaching us about our own faith. So the first point in the outline relating to this first picture the scene of Moses with his father-in-law Jethro we see that God encourages 
a struggling faith. And this shows his power. God encourages a struggling faith, showing his power. Moses going to tell his father-in-law about returning to Egypt is admirable. He doesn't leave the mountainside where he was talking with God, abandon the sheep that his father-in-law had entrusted with him to watch, and just grab his family and make a beeline to Egypt. He doesn't sinfully respond by abandoning that responsibility. And Jethro actually gives him his blessing. Go in peace. But what he tells Jethro reveals, I believe, the current state of Moses' faith. What does he say? He asks permission to go back to Egypt to see whether his brothers are still alive. This is only a partial truth, and it's really a poor one at that because he's already been told by God that they're there and he's supposed to bring them out. So Moses tells Jethro nothing about meeting God a few minutes ago, about the true mission that God is sending him to do of rescuing his people from Egypt. I think there's probably some rationalization going on in Moses' head. What if I tell him the whole story and he doesn't want me to go? What if Jethro doubts whether this was really God talking to me? What if he questions my mission? What if he laughs at me? So there's something going on. Maybe he's desiring to control the outcome by telling him something he knows Jethro will respond favorably to. But ultimately it shows, I believe, a lack of faith, of confidence in God's promise. So he basically says, I'm going to check in to see how my people are doing. And God, along the way, I believe, is teaching him about his true fears. Because God, in turn, knows that Moses' fear is for his life. That's why he left 40 years ago. He was fearing for his life after he killed the Egyptian as a fugitive. So after the murder was found out, God acknowledges here that there were people seeking his life, but they are now dead. This is God encouraging Moses as the state of his faith is still weak and struggling. God graciously tells Moses, the coast is clear. You will return safely and not be killed for your murder. In addition, we also see at the end of verse 20 a staff transformed because during Moses shepherding this earlier conversation with God, he has a staff. When God asks him, what's that, what's that in your hand? He says, a staff. For those who play video games, this is like a level one staff. It's not very powerful, can't accomplish much at all. Every shepherd carries one of these things. But I love the transformation we see in the staff. God, after asking him what he has, has him throw it on the ground. You recall it turns into a serpent. He picks it up again by the tail and it turns back into a staff. Look at what Moses is carrying now in verse 20. He has the staff of God in his hand. This staff has been transformed into a level 10 staff capable of defeating Pharaoh, capable of parting Red Seas, capable of bringing water from rocks, and ultimately a symbol of something far greater than Moses or a carved piece of wood. The staff in Egyptian culture was a symbol of power. If you look, I spent a little bit of time yesterday, I was at the library, looking through some Egyptian mythology books. So there's lots of pictures of hieroglyphics and of, of stone relief structures. Every time there's a king, a leader, one of the, the gods, the deities, they all carry a staff. And it looks a lot like a shepherd's staff. Because in that culture, the staff was a symbol of power. It was the royal scepter of the day. So for Moses to be returning to Egypt carrying the staff of God means my God is the one who is really on the throne. It was a picture of God's power and his rule wherever Moses took it. It was a kingly scepter and it would be used powerfully 
to defeat armies and cross seas. This God encouraging a struggling faith was really powerful for me and encouraging. And I started asking myself the question, what opportunity, what what tool that God has given to me provided by God that I'm treating like it's just just an old staff. It, it's nothing. What divine provisions, brothers and sisters, might we be neglecting that are intended to be demonstrations of God's power and presence and rule in our lives? Could it be the word of God? Could it be the spirit that indwells the heart of every Christian, the privilege of prayer, the encouragement and fellowship of others? Do we undermine the power of these things that God has given us for the fight of faith? I'm sure there's others too, but ask yourself, what am I devaluing that God has provided to build and strengthen my faith? And even just personally, after last week's message, God was bringing to mind and to my heart some specific individuals that I spend quite a bit of time with through work and people that I tend to rationalize not talking about God with. I mean, there's, there's opportunities sometime even outside of work when it would not take away from what I'm doing for my company, when I could talk about God and, and sometimes don't. So I had a, a, a sweet conviction of the Spirit challenging my own lack of faith that he's there that he can work through the sharing of my hope in Christ with others. And in response to this, God graciously brought someone to me this week, a close friend of mine, that started asking me serious questions about God and about Jesus and about the Bible. This wasn't me trying to sell him something. This was him in a time of struggle coming to me and saying, I need to know more. There's something out there that I need to know about. I got to tell him about my hope, about my Jesus. I was so encouraged after leaving this conversation, both that God was being kind to me by showing how unfounded the fears that often build up in our heads are, but also in reminding me that he is actively working to draw worshipers to himself. I'm so thankful that God didn't respond to me or to Moses by giving up when our faith is weak. But he provides encouragement, reminds us that he's there and that he is the one that is growing our faith. The second point, God ordains a hardened response. And the attribute of God that this shows is his sovereignty, his sovereignty or his rule. And here, in verse number 22, actually 21, we have the introduction to what's going to continue over the next several chapters, but it's a key concept in this section. As we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility, these are often set against each other as mutually exclusive. Either God is sovereign or man must be responsible, but both can and must be true. We have some verses coming up that will tell us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then we have other verses that will say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And you might feel like those are in conflict with each other. And in yet other places, we have Pharaoh's heart being hardened passively, as if there's no one initiating this response and there's just Pharaoh and his hard heart. And since we'll cover it more, I'm going to leave much for upcoming sermon opportunities on this and small group discussion. But I do want to say that in the sovereignty of God, the clay has no right to call the potter unjust for forming him a certain way. And at the same time, people, individuals, are fully responsible before God for their own sinful choices. So that applies to Pharaoh. Pharaoh chose to reject God, to harden his heart against God. But this also applies to us. We can't blame God for our circumstances. 
Nor can we say, oh, must be God's will. God is sovereign. He's going to work everything out. But it's only by his great mercy that he rescues any of us from our sin and its consequences. So a caution. Don't let this text about the sovereignty of God and about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to turn you into a nervous Nelly. I don't think we have any Nellies here. I try not to use names and that going to bother someone. But don't let this turn you into someone that's always nervous about whether or not your heart has been hardened by God. Because to some, I think you will read this and you'll say, it says that God hardened his heart, so that must have happened to me. No, pursue God with every breath you have rather than running around in circles wondering about hypotheticals and possibilities and could I perhaps have been hardened. Some of you might be more inclined to this than others and maybe find that your understanding of the sovereignty of God is is a crutch to you, a crutch to sin. I can do whatever I want because God is in control anyway. No, that's not a view of the sovereignty of God supported by Scripture. Or you use it as a wall that keeps you from moving forward with God. I can't get to God because I'm not exactly sure whether he chose me. Let's just put it this way. If you desire in your heart a relationship with God and you rely on the work of Christ in faith and are actively seeking to grow, then be assured you are a recipient of God's grace. You, like all of us, need to keep growing in your understanding of God. But if you desire God, then you are fighting the fight of faith. People dead in their sins can't and don't desire God. So God is continuing this preparation process of Moses. Moses knew from his earlier meeting with God that he had learned these signs. He knew that he was going to perform the signs before the Israelites. But now God tells him, and also you're going to also speak to and do the signs before the ruler of the superpower of the known world. So, yeah, don't, don't be nervous about that, Moses. But in addition to that, he's going to reject you. You are not going to be received well. Moses is learning that his first persuasive speech to Pharaoh is going to utterly fail. What do you think that felt like? Not that he will do it poorly, not that he's going to mess up his delivery, but that it will be unsuccessful because God has another plan to show his power. Rather than convincing Pharaoh, God's power will be demonstrated over Pharaoh so that all will know that he is Yahweh. So how do you think Moses responded to this message? You think it might have stretched his faith a little bit to realize this was a little bit different maybe than what he had originally thought? How would you respond? And even an application of this point about God's sovereignty, I want us to be thinking about some heart applications. And one that seemed helpful from these first couple of points and what they show us about God is this. Since God is both powerful and sovereign, I don't need to be in control. We all need to recognize this truth. Since God is powerful and sovereign, I don't need to be in control. That can be a difficult, difficult truth to accept. And maybe you're someone that's lived much of your life trying to control, either by manipulating or by dominating every situation in your life. Perhaps instead you wear yourself out each week through busyness and frustration or find yourself struggling with constant worry. As Tim Chester put it in his book, You Can Change, he said, we often associate the sovereignty of God with theological debates. How sovereign is God? But for all of us, it's a daily practical choice. 
My personal struggle here is often I like to escape. If there's something I find that I can't control or manage, my fleshly response is to run away into a make-believe world that I can control and manage. Paul Tripp refers this to shrinking your life down to the size of what you can control. But instead, when we recognize that God is sovereign, when there's things out of our control, when we turn in faith to him, our kingdom, our world expands to the size of God's kingdom. When we cry out to God about our struggles, recognizing we can't control them, we put God back on his throne as the true and only sovereign. Jesus talks about this as a matter of our faith. Luke 12, 25 to 32. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you're not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? O you of little faith. I don't believe he's attacking them by saying that, but I think he's pointing out their faith is weak, it's small, and he's a big God. He goes on and says, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. All the nations of the world seek after those things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Since God is both sovereign and powerful, I don't need to be in control. Our third point as we walk through today's narrative Also, another truth about God is that he identifies with his firstborn. God identifies with his firstborn. This shows his love. This is a, a precious message in these verses. One of infinite God identifying with his people. And in the first time in scripture, he's calling Israel my firstborn son. Verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. That's a statement of authority. When in that day and culture, thus says the Lord was spoken, or thus says my God, it's a statement of of power and authority that this is from the very mouth of God something to hear. And what is the first thus says the Lord? Israel is my firstborn son. His personal declaration of sonship was and still is how God has chosen to relate to his own. In that day, the firstborn had special importance. Aside from getting clothes that weren't handed down from their older sibling, no, I'm not the least bit better about being a second child, but aside from getting the new clothes, the firstborn of that day was actually guaranteed a double inheritance. They carried more responsibility, more privilege in the family. In kingly lines, they were the ones to inherit the throne. And God eventually will set the firstborn of each family in Israel apart as his own in Numbers 3.13, both of people and of animals, of livestock. And God even marks there the exodus, the story of taking them out of Egypt as when he consecrates the firstborn of each family for himself. So not only does God own the pharaohs of the world by right and by power, but God claims and is committed to his people as to a firstborn son. And God continues then by describing to Moses a very violent message that he's to communicate to Pharaoh when they first meet. I'm going to paraphrase what he what he says, since Israel is my firstborn son, I'm claiming them as my own and you must let them go to serve me. Your days of mistreating my people are over, Pharaoh. And if you won't let them go, your own firstborn son will die as a result. If you don't give me what is precious to me, I will take what is precious to you. This 
is how much the sonship of my people means to me. That's the extent to which God's love for his people goes. He will act to Pharaoh's deepest hurt to rescue his people back from Egyptian bondage. And he later acts to his own hurt, putting to death another firstborn son in the place of his people. In the passage Tim read earlier this afternoon, in Colossians 1.15, Christ is called the firstborn of all creation. And God puts him to death. There's suffering of a firstborn son to rescue his people out of their bondage. This early picture of a substitute is starting to show the life and death realities of redemption. The act of salvation costs someone something. And Pharaoh is going to pay heavily in this redemptive dress rehearsal But God ultimately takes the greatest punishment and payment in the redemption of sinners that takes place on a hill with three crosses. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John captures it perfectly there. If we want to understand and know the love of our Father, look to what He has done to make us His sons. We should be called children of God. This should be a comfort to us, brothers and sisters. The truth that God lovingly calls us His children is given, is provided as an immense source of comfort. Do you feel that comfort? Have we perhaps grown too calloused by this truth? I think that's possible. Because whether or not you had a wonderful earthly father or someone who failed or hurt you, our God is everything we could ever need as our protecting, comforting, leading, protecting, correcting, and loving father. He's a father that will never walk out on you, Never miss your best or worst days. Never disappoint you. So another heart check I want us to consider together. Since God is my loving Father, I don't need to earn my acceptance. Since God is my loving Father, I don't need to earn or to merit or to work for my acceptance. There's nothing I could do to add to the love God has for me since it was merited by Christ's work. There's not anything I brought to that transaction. And we've said this truth here before, but I think we need to keep repeating it because it's easy for something to creep into our lives where we start to make our relationship with God about what we've done for him lately. A form of legalism creeps in we forget the gospel truth of how we're truly loved and accepted by our Father. Our fourth point, God threatens over a divided response. God threatens over a divided response and this shows his jealousy. Let me start by saying this passage, this part of today's passage is perplexing. Not just to me, but to people who give their lives to studying this kind of thing. And that doesn't in any way limit what we can learn from it, so please don't tune it out and say it's confusing. I don't feel like being confused today. But I think it does affect, though, how dogmatic we can be on the specifics of what happened. I feel sort of like I'm watching the scene play out through frosted glass with a blindfold on. Like, I know there's something happening and I, I, I can hear pieces of the action. And part of the reason for that is most of the pronouns in this text, those are like the he's, the him's, the his, don't have an antecedent, which means they're not referring back to a previous name that you can easily connect which he is he talking about here. So when we look at it at a lodging place on the way, verse 24, the Lord met him 
and sought to put him to death. I believe, and I think I could probably support this, I believe those hymns are Moses. From the contour of the passage, this is about Moses and his journey. I think for him to insert another hymn would be confusing, even if that hymn is the son of Zipporah that ends up getting circumcised in verse 25. And then there's some more personal pronouns. So similarly, it's difficult, it's ambiguous a little bit to tell if it's talking about Moses or his sons. makes it a little confusing. But not to be confused, I think we can draw out the main point. And that is that God threatens divine judgment over this covenant sign of circumcision. So let's dive in a little bit. And for me, another part that can be challenging is in verse 24, we read that the Lord sought to put him to death. Does God try to do anything that he doesn't accomplish? Did God try to put Moses to death, but Moses, you know, blocked him? No, I don't think so. But this is sort of a literary device. It's a way of speaking to show the seriousness, the life and death seriousness of outwardly identifying with God. This is God threatening the life. He was probably very near death. And if there had not been some response, God could have taken Moses' life in this point. But there is no trying with God. God is not unable to kill Moses. He is providing him some mercy by withholding his judgment. And in that time, there is a response. Jesus points out, as this passage does, the importance of identification. Matthew 10.33, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And in a similar way, I think, Moses was not yet all in with God and with God's people. He was willing to go on this journey to rescue God's people, but by failing to circumcise, he was not yet saying, I am one of God's people. My family is one of God's people. And in this scene where Moses is nearly killed over not identifying with God, we see just how jealous God is for our affections. Just how jealous God is for our affections. The Old Testament fills out the attribute of God's jealousy when Israel his firstborn son that he just called, when they pursue false gods of other nations. And God jealously pursues his people to bring them back. God doesn't casually sit back and offer relationship to his people while letting them pursue those idols, but he jealously seeks to bring them back. And in this case here in Exodus 4, that jealousy is is put on display as a violent, but loving act to challenge Moses and Zipporah over their not identifying with God and his people. God had provided this external sign of the covenant. We studied it in Genesis. But in Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you, shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And to show how serious he is, God adds this after the command. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So even in taking these steps of faith, returning to Egypt to deliver God's people, by failing to circumcise, they had not yet committed to actually being part of God's people themselves. But there is a response. And there's a response that I think pictures once again for us God's 
loving grace. From what the narrator tells us, Zipporah knew why Moses was dying. And she acts swiftly with a flint knife. This probably wouldn't have been an ideal tool from the son's perspective. In fact, we don't know how old Gershom was, but I think he could have been anywhere from 20 to 40. So, yeah, to remedy the situation and save her husband's life, she jumps into action. So this would seem to indicate that both Moses and Zipporah knew about their sin. It had been a previous discussion, maybe, or argument between them. But when Zipporah circumcises her son Gershom and then touches the blood to Moses, he lives. When the blood touches Moses, he lives. Does that remind you of anything else in Exodus? It reminds me of the Passover event that's going to come in several chapters when they kill a lamb and then paint that blood on their doorposts, showing that this is people that are, are set apart for God and the angel of death would pass over them. I think this very well could be an early picture of substitution and of atonement. That means substitution to take someone else's place and atonement covering sins through blood sacrifice and beautifully shows us again God's mercy joined with his justice. Well, Zipporah says something then after she does this act and after Moses is, is rescued, delivered by his wife. And to jump right to the point, I don't know why Zipporah says what she says. She says, a bridegroom of blood you are to me. I, it doesn't sound like a compliment, but it probably has, well, we know the text tells us it's because of the circumcision. So something about the circumcision is now referring to him as a bridegroom of blood. I think it's most likely she was re-identifying herself with Moses a second time. They were first identified together in marriage, but now a second time. He was delivered from death by blood. So she is now, or he is now her bridegroom of blood. It also could have been an ancient cultural reference that we've lost track of over the generations. And we won't go into all the possible meanings, but I think the key points are clear. Through Zipporah's obedience, by identifying themselves with God's people, Moses was delivered from death. And their family is now identified with God. We don't see Zipporah again until Exodus 18. But here again in the book, we have God using women to work deliverance, showing his grace. God intensely pursues covenant relationship. I use the word intensely, intentionally. This was an intense and violent love even more important than Moses being around to deliver the people is the alignment of Moses and his family toward God. God jealously wants our hearts, not just part of them, as we fool ourselves into thinking we can pursue the world and him at the same time. And he's so committed to his people that as a loving father, he will discipline to bring us back into relationship and worship we don't like discipline when it happens. Hebrews 12 tells us that. But it's a clear sign of sonship and draws us close to the Father. Hebrews 12:5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So God identifying himself again with his chosen Moses by discipline and Moses in Zipporah in turn identifying themselves with God. On this question, of God and his jealous love. 
What aspect of being identified with God am I missing? Is there perhaps something, some way that I am holding back in relationship with God? Could it be in a close friendship of the world that I'm failing to identify with God as one of his children? James chapter 4 says much about that. What about other clear signs of new covenant relationships with God? Baptism and the Lord's table are two big ones that jump right to mind. Both of these given as ways to identify with God and his people. And if you want to identify with God in these ways, I encourage you to talk with the elders, myself or one of the other elders. We'd love to talk with you about it. But since God is jealous and holy, I don't get to determine the terms of our relationship with each other. Since God is jealous and holy, we don't determine those terms of our relationship. Number five, our last point, God creates faith and inspires worship. This shows his glory. This is a particularly sweet portion because here we have what Moses most feared, or at least what he said he most feared, being rejected by the people, just evaporates into thin air. But first we have Moses and Aaron meeting. God speaks to Aaron, tells him, this is where you'll find Moses, your brother, who you probably haven't seen for decades. They meet at the mountain of God where God himself had met Moses. There Moses tells Aaron everything. Notice the change that happened. Look at the growth in Moses' faith. Look at how little he told Jethro. Nothing about God. I'm just going to check on my people. But instead he tells Aaron all the words of the Lord and all the signs that God commanded him to do. And from there, we quickly have the narration jump to gathering the elders, the leaders of Israel, and Moses through Aaron speaking as God's mouthpiece, the signs being performed. What will happen? Will they receive or reject this deliverer? The rejection of his role as deliverer was one of Moses' greatest fears. But he was now in God's place. He was identified with the people of God. And the results were exactly as God had promised. Because the people respond in faith. The response of God's people to the word of God and the signs was swift. We see it in verse 31. And the people believed. It's almost anticlimactic. We expect some big struggle, but he obeyed. They believed. We'll see an ongoing struggle in their faith, but here I believe are seeds of true faith in the God that is coming to deliver them. And in response to their faith, with their faith at the hearing of Yahweh's visit and of caring for them, their response is to bow and worship their covenant-keeping God. Generations of their people had been under bondage to different pharaohs, but here was assurance that God had seen them in their affliction, hearing of God's love and care and promised deliverance, provoked their hearts to do what they were created to do, to worship. And hearing that for us is the same. This is the same way we grow in faith, brothers and sisters. We receive the word of God when it's read and preached. We believe that God is telling the truth to us. We see signs that he is working in his people. And we worship in response to his promised deliverance. Every time we meet as a church, just like today, every week, we should be deliberate and open about repeating this pattern, about hearing what God says, about believing, and about worshiping. When we struggle to do one of these things, because we will, we ask God for the energy and the focus to hear. We ask him for the faith to believe and for the heart to worship. These are prayers that he loves to answer for his people. So in concluding application, since God is glorious, I don't need to fear others. Since God is glorious, I don't need to fear others. A common reason 
we may sin is fearing rejection or craving approval. We idolize the acceptance of others and in effect be con- start to be controlled by them. The Bible calls this the fear of man. And the right way to respond to this struggle is to grow our view of God and his glory. A proper fear of God challenges our fear of man. As we meditate on God's greatness, his glory, his holiness, his power, his splendor, his beauty, his grace, mercy, and love, and like the psalmist, our heart begins to become retrained to see God in new and glorious ways. So then when you see someone and fear their rejection or crave their approval, just put God next to them in your mind's eye and ask which of their approval really matters to me. Even natural fear needs to be regulated with a faith in God. We can take people's expectations seriously out of love for them, but we're not enslaved by them. So instead of being Moses telling Jethro nothing of our real reason for going back to Egypt, maybe that's talking to a coworker about what you're doing on the weekend and saying nothing of God or his people or the body that you worship with. Instead, we become Moses telling Aaron everything God has been teaching us and doing in our lives. By submitting to Christ and his lordship, we are freed to serve others in love. So by faith, Moses returns to Egypt. Hebrews 11, I was looking at it some this week and and Chad was really kind to bring it up on Thursday night. Moses' faith was identified when he first rejected being identified with the Egyptians and chose to identify with the people of God. That was 40 years before what's taking place in our passage today. So there's this long, strenuous, grueling process of Moses' growth in faith, which is ultimately commended by God. By faith, Moses returns to Egypt then. He returns in fear, but he returns in confidence eventually of God's identification and jealousy for him. God is writing the story of your sanctification, of your fight of faith and becoming more like Jesus. And in today's story, we are Moses. Each of us that live and breathe and fight for faith, we may not see God in burning bushes, but our lives are punctuated by struggle in areas of belief and identity and experience of God's power or his jealous love. And if you're struggling today because it feels like your steps forward in faith are so small or that your stumbles back are so large, I hope that through them you will see God's faithful identification with you and with us. How do you see God working to grow your faith today? And what will be our response? Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray for you to show us more of your glory and of your power, of your jealousy, of your sovereignty, of your love. I pray that our hearts and our souls, like the psalmists, would thirst for you beholding your power and glory and see your steadfast love as better than life. Father, only you can do this work in our hearts. Faith is something that you have planted in every true child of yours and it's something that you are faithful by your spirit to grow and develop. And you have given us means. You have given us your word and prayer and the body. I pray that you would develop 
our senses for seeing how you're growing us, for encouraging each other in areas of growth, in looking to heart issues of fear of men, of trying to control, and that we would instead fall on our faces before your glory and worship. We pray this in the name of Jesus, for your glory and for the good of your people. Amen.